not, as I say, a coder. I've never been able to do that, but I've always worked in technology. So if people take anything from me, it is that you really can build your own career and life in this stuff. And it's difficult, of course, and I'm not underestimating still the misogyny, the challenges, the difficulty for women and for other categories of people. But at the same time, there are more opportunities than ever. There are more ways you can be an entrepreneur. There are more opportunities to get involved, to learn, to grow. And that is a phenomenally exciting moment to live in. Hello, and welcome back to the Women of Web3 podcast. I'm Lauren Ingram, and I'm the founder of Women of Web3. We're a community and a consultancy, and we've been educating thousands of women about Web3 and sharing jobs, events, and learning resources like this podcast. In every episode, I'll be interviewing an incredible leader about their learnings. We start off by breaking down the Web3 jargon, then we head deeper down the rabbit hole. Please do subscribe and give us a rating. It really helps more people find the podcast. This week, we've got another amazing guest. We've been so lucky to have incredible women joining the show like this. And this week, it's Martha Lane Fox. It would take a long time to summarize her entire career in tech and business, but she's best known as the co-founder of lastminute.com. That was one of the darlings of the dot-com boom around the millennium. She's also on the board of various companies like Chanel, WeTransfer. She's been an amazing, amazing advocate for women and for diversity more broadly in tech and business. She's got some brilliant, really refreshing advice for our community, and she tells it like it is, so you're going to fall in love with her, I promise. So without further ado, here's Martha. Welcome to the Women of Web3 podcast, Martha. Of course, I know exactly who you are, but I ask everyone, um, could you say a little bit about who you are and what you do? It's very hard to describe what I do without sounding like a bit of a plonker because I don't have one job. I have multiple roles across different things, which sounds far busier than it actually is. I don't run an organization anymore. I co-founded lastminute.com back in the dawn of time, had a crazy journey through the romp of the early days of the internet, and then took the company public, left the company, survived not only the dot-com crash, but then a real world crash. My whole life changed forever. I had to reorganize my working life. And so now I do a bunch of different things. I sit on some boards. Um, I'm on the board of Chanel. I chair WeTransfer. Till recently, I was on the board of Twitter. And then I also am a member of the House of Lords. I'm a crossbench peer, Chancellor of the University. And most recently, and very interestingly, at this moment in the political cycle, I am president of the British Chambers of Commerce. Amazing. So um, not very much then. <laughs> well, it sounds a lot, but honestly, um, it's really less than you might think because I don't, you know, you don't have to be running an organisation every single day. So sometimes something blows up and it's incredibly intense. And then mm. a lot of time I'm really much more flexible. So yes, it's up and down. When you've got obviously incredible experiences, is there a kind of common thread you would say in, in the kind of things that you're working on at the moment or, or in terms of what you are hoping to make an impact on? Because I, I know they're sort of broadly focused on tech, but not exclusively. No, I, I really, I hope I'm not just focused on tech anymore after nearly 30 years in the industry. You know, it's 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 hardly even a separate sector, isn't it? It's more so kind of building block to everything. The things that interest me now are, are twofold, I think. And of course, because of the incredible luck I've had and the journey that I've been on, I respond to entrepreneurship, not just in the commercial sector, but also in the charitable sector as well. You know, people that are trying to do difficult things, solve difficult problems and start something from scratch. That's always been a fundamental part of who I am. But then the second plank, I guess, is much more about sort of sustainability, diversity, responsibility. I don't know if that's one thing, but trying to either build businesses that are good or build charities that are good, try and represent something that feels a bit different to what people sometimes characterize both businesses and, and let's be honest, they sometimes tech as well. Totally. I mean, it, yeah, running a business or running a profitable business doesn't have to be at the expense of uh, doing good in the world or, you know, working with good people. No, yeah, exactly. And one of the things I've seen, you know, British Chambers of Commerce has 100,000 members across the world, not, you know, some digital businesses, but, you know, many, many 
more who are not. And I've heard again and again and again stories of businesses that are impacting their local community, trying to do something to help us transition to net zero more quickly. There are so many stories of great businesses and I think that that narrative gets lost and that depresses me. So if I have one kind of motivating factor over the next year, I think it really is that to keep trying to build the case for British business and Britain as a place where good businesses will thrive. Mm -hmm. It does feel like a lot has changed in a short time for for the UK. Occasionally, I've actually heard us described as a laughing stock. I was listening to a sort of New Zealand-based podcast. We are. Sometimes we are. I have to say, the last time I went to New York was a year ago, just after the Queen had died. And I think there's sometimes a belief here that, you know, the world looks on and respects and admires us for our monarchy. And, you know, the Queen was a universally loved figure, all of which might be true, but to a person, everyone I met in New York thought we were actually insane completely bonkers that we had shut down for as long as we'd shut down that everything was kind of black across the motorways it was just in their eyes we looked ridiculous and I think it's really important to remember that sometimes let's yeah see ourselves in that sort of wider context I'd love to ask you about your opinion on on web3 so I, I know that you've got all this experience in tech and so you've sort of uh, seen the the boom and bust cycles and you've obviously seen the sort of hype cycle around web3 yes and and the sort of dying off again but for me I think there is still longevity in it in terms of things like blockchain's ability to prove ownership and things like that but I'd, I'd love to know as the dot-com dinosaur as you describe yourself dinosaur, actually not self-described someone described it to me that's where my joke came from <laughs> you know I think you're right and I think it's really important to keep putting these things in a not just a five-year view but a 10 to 15 20 year view I mean I'm very suspicious of people that try to forecast too far ahead because who the hell knows but There are some things that feel like black planks and building blocks and some things that feels like flash in the pans of excitement over a thing. And if I think about, you know, e-commerce, for example, clearly the shift to people buying stuff on the internet was some fundamental building block that was going to change the kind of the nature of the web, but also people's daily lives substantially. The same feels true of blockchain. I'm not a technical expert to um, be able to understand in detail about the kind of rebuilding that I know many people are doing of basic internet infrastructure around blockchain technologies. But if you've got something that many smart people think is an ability to change the way that we are um, using the technologies that we take for granted every day, then that feels to me quite a substantial shift. It will probably be in a different timeline with different applications and use cases to perhaps what people thought two or three years ago. The investment opportunities are different now, clearly. I think everyone was kind of racing into Web3 and metaverse-based activities two years ago, and now kind of a generative AI has eclipsed that totally. But if you strip away all of that, as you're quite rightly trying to do, and look at actually what the technology enables, you know, there are a bunch of people, actually a lot of them ex-Twitter people I know, Silicon Valley, who are using some of these tools to really imagine quite literally what the internet is built on and that feels like it's a substantial and permanent shift. I I really like that summary and out of interest actually what do you think of things like uh, the metaverse or nfts do they they do they seem like the sort of flash in the pan side of things for you i i, I don't know i mean i think there's a difference isn't there between every single um, organization and company and idea being valued as the winner when you have something exciting emerging versus the reality which is one of those hundred might be so it doesn't mean that nfts are flawed completely just because the 99 goes flying 
off out the window mm. and clearly blow up and aren't valuable. There is something in there that is exciting and interesting, you know, owning a digital asset, creating something digital, whether it's art, whether it's fashion, whatever it might be, has clearly got um, the substance of a good idea in it. But I think the thing that has happened is that people have realised that there are a lot of things that were just nearly verging on fraudulent, some of them, mm -hmm. but at the best end of the spectrum. You know, I'm on the board of Chanel, for example. Chanel is building a lot of interesting NFTs because clearly they've got a really rare asset that people love. You can create a beautiful product that people can use in gaming or can use in um, other virtual worlds that they're building, and that has value. So I think it's a complicated picture um, and I think we should be careful not to, you know, throw away everything just because for a while everything was being valued as the winner, which is clearly never going to be the case. Exactly. And it, it does feel like we need to get away from that sort of, those extremes of or everything being about the sort of monetary value of something like an NFT. Yes, exactly. Um, and thinking about, yeah, how do you build value, make it like actually a really nice experience, like a really beautiful experience for the user and things like that. Because we're, we're still not quite there yet. No. Um, it's early and I think I do observe, you know, I try not to go to tech conferences, to be honest, but when I do get dragged out of my little holes to go to one, you know, it was every single um, panel was about Web3 and Metaverse-based stuff two years, three years ago, as you well know. And now it's not. It's about longevity and AI for productivity or about, you know, how we're all going to, how, how the jobs market is going to substantially shift. But it's not gone completely. You know, there are still people who are thinking deeply about the interrelationship between um, these technologies. And I think, you know, that that is super interesting. And, you know, I've got seven-year-old twin boys. They don't spend a lot of time gaming and doing stuff, as you'd imagine, because they're seven. But the boundaries between what they're doing when they're doing Minecraft-based stuff and building worlds. And that's a very early-gen product, isn't it, compared to my generation and what will be another generation ahead. You know, there is a trend here that is moving. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's also what is normal to us. Yes, exactly. I heard a Douglas Adams quote, which I'm probably going to horrendously misquote, but about if something exists when you're born it's normal and natural to you. Yes. If, it, um, yes. if it arrives when you're between the ages of 15 and 35, you kind of accept it as this new, shiny, exciting technology or thing. Mm -hmm. And if it's beyond the age of 35, it's like against the natural order of things in your life. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I think, yeah, so for, for our little ones, things like generative AI and some, you know, mm -hmm. gaming and digital worlds is, is so normal they love it they're like mama mama can we use that thing where we make poems again oh. can we make some more silly poems i mean the poems are so bad still but <laughs> they love that stuff and so you know exactly if we keep looking at it through the eyes of the next generations and the generations beyond that and try to find the longer term trends i think that's a smart place to start well, that's um quite a leap forward from the um fridge poetry that i used to do with uh when i was about that age <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> Um, I wanted to talk about uh, women in tech, which I know you've spoken about a lot in the last uh, 20 odd years. So. 500 years, yeah. <laughs> but I also know from our previous conversation with you, it sounds like it can be really frustrating. So we're, we're talking about some of the same issues that just... I went to the Women's March when Donald Trump became president. I went to Washington to march. I mean, obviously that went super well. And there were signs there going, you know, I can't believe I still have to protest this shit. And I feel like that. I feel like I can't believe I still have to say this stuff. And I hate the fact that, mm -hmm. you know, I go around in my head thinking, do you have to say it? You don't want to be the white noise person and be the person always banging on about it. And then I think, but you have to because it's too important a subject and people don't understand it. And I think, oh, we don't. You know, it's it's torturous. But the truth is the numbers are freaking awful and they're not budging fast enough. In fact, they're stopping and getting worse. So 
we have to keep talking about it, but it can't be me and you that talk about it solely, Lauren. It has to be men, it has to be our, I hate the expression allies, but I guess they are, but colleagues, partners, bosses, juniors, you know, it has to be a combined conversation because it can't be only the people who are affected talking about it because it's never going to be able, therefore, to jump forwards with that conversation kept in its bubble, I guess. Totally. And I wonder actually if the risk's going down a whole sort of parenting rabbit hole, but I wonder if things like modern dads, I suppose, um, with the opportunity to become more hands-on in, in a way that the pandemic sort of shifted things yeah. um, and having dads at home with their with their little kids more. Yeah. And I wonder if that will be part of what sort of shifts that thinking of, like, you know, getting more men on board with the idea of like how, like the, the need to make these kind of changes that that might help that I think men are starting to care more about, uh, you know, what what does parenting look like alongside real work and real life? Well, I think especially men who have daughters, especially men who have daughters, right? I think, I hope so. I hope so. You know, I perceive a different conversation. You were saying just yesterday at the British Chambers of Commerce and we're building this new business council and that's kind of a cross-sector um, council that's working with lots and lots of different businesses to build some recommendations for the incoming future government after the election. And they've been le- meeting lots of CEOs from the FTSE 100 to the FTSE 250 to the FTSE 350, but, you know, relatively big businesses. And I have to say, I said just yesterday to a colleague at the BCC, you know, I think my perception of people who are running those businesses... 10 years ago is very different to the people I'm meeting now. Yes, mainly still men and yes, mainly still white men, but good men, men who are concerned about these issues, who are happy to talk about these issues, who don't raise their eyes to heaven when, you know, I ask them questions about the gender balance of their executive team or, you know, are very focused on sustainability, all these things that um, I think we probably both believe matter. And that does feel, again, it's going too slowly, but there is a shift and it's a shift since I started working for sure. And it matters exactly the reason you say. And Although that is happening in technology, I don't think it's happening fast enough. I think that um, there has been way more conversation about the numbers, way more, um, you know, you cannot be a kind of tech leader and not in some way at least put your hat tip towards some of these things. But if you look at what's actually happening, it's still not moving fast enough. So there's something between the kind of conversation and the influence and the action that is still not quite joined up enough. That's, that's I think, what I, I, I think I think's happening. Yeah, it, it, there is some disconnect there. Although I'm actually quite reassured with what you're just saying about um, yeah. the attitudes. If, if you're getting access to some of that many CEOs and see, yes. sort of getting that getting that sentiment and seeing some positive change there, that is quite reassuring. Yeah, I mean, but but the bottom line is though, the numbers still are shit. And the people I'm meeting are still predominantly white men. And that is not to have a go at them. You know, mm. As I say, they're on the good side, I would have said, and mm. leaning into the right things. And I've been surprised by that, but it's still not, not fast enough. It really isn't. And this is slightly old data, but it's still worth reinforcing. You know, McKinsey did some work probably about five, six years ago, certainly pre, way pre-pandemic. It probably means it's got worse again to show the amount of time to parity across different various sectors and, you know, being kind of self-obsessed. I looked at the ones that affected me and looking at politics, and I think it was about 30 years till politics reaches parity. Well, I thought, you know, that might happen in my lifetime. It's not appalling. I looked at business, you know, maybe 80 years, I think. I thought, well, again, probably not my lifetime, but maybe Silicon Valley does its longevity magic. It might be. And then I looked at engineering, technology, manufacturing that's kind of clumped together. Never never reach parity because right now it's actually going slightly backwards so you know 
as a picture, that's not very edifying. And I think we should all be concerned by it. Because mm. it matters. It matters. It matters about power. It matters about the creation of the right kinds of products. It matters about the future workforce, all those things. Exactly. It affects absolutely everything. The line I'm taking at the moment when trying to speak to probably especially the sort of Web3 and emerging tech, or I suppose essentially tech startups yeah. that are still on the sort of smaller high growth side of things mm. is because web3 is particularly bad for it so um yeah yeah nine out of ten web3 startups don't have a woman on the on the co-founding team i was just wondering i think if you took the web3 out of that sentence i think it's about seven out of ten don't have a woman on the founding team i think god eight yeah th- things need to change but the, the the line i'm going with at the moment is trying to get people oh, i suppose guys to see the commercial opportunity that this could represent of like if you don't have any women on the founding team building you know web3 focused products you're not going to speak to women with those products and so you're missing out on that revenue opportunity so actually there's a, like, a massive commercial reason to bring women into your business and also broadly diversify who works on this stuff who creates this stuff because if we want the technology to be in, in everybody's hands um in a sort of you know democratic sense I'm trying to so encourage people to chase those diversity dollars as well. It might be what speaks to people. So we're in obviously quite a weird time. It feels like we've been saying that for about five years, but it does feel like a particularly odd time, even um, just in the sort of aftershock of all the open AI drama that's been in the, in the sort of last few days. I was la- well, not laughing, but my good friend, Brett Taylor, uh, who I served on the board of Twitter with, his chair when I was on the board, um, has now become chair of OpenAI and I messaged him last night just saying you cannot help jumping from the fry pan into the fire consistently. Um, anyway, if anyone can work out, work through those challenges, it'll be him. He's a really spectacular leader. Wow. I wonder the exact order of things by the time this podcast comes out. I've never seen such extreme fast change at a business that's so... Um... Yeah, I think, I mean, extreme fast change does happen a lot, right? But it's just, but again, the, this has caught the media's attention, hasn't it? And it's, you know, OpenAI is a phenomenally interesting company, an important company. I'd love to be on that board, Brett, if you're listening. But um, it's it's also just a fantastically kind of gossipy piece that plays it to the media narratives that are kind of boring about technology, but maybe still probably true. So I think it has been given a disproportionate amount of attention. And I you know, now listen again and again to stuff and read the paper and think, oh God, enough already. It's you know, it's a mid-sized company doing exciting stuff, but, but move on, everybody move on. <laughs> Are you excited about generative AI or or maybe ChatGPT specifically? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, and it's changed my working life completely. Has it? You know, and I, again, I, I really am not an AI technologist. I'm not an expert, but I'm an interested party and I've tried to get engaged. And what I've said to, you know, especially the non-tech businesses that I've worked with is just, you have to play with this stuff. You know, mm-hmm. I've said it's a dereliction of duty if you don't, because it's so freaking easy. There's no excuse. You should have five or six apps on your phone as a CEO and you should be jumping between them and seeing how they're improving and changing and in my own experience and how I work which is as we've already established quite peculiar you know it's made have definitely made me more productive and more informed and I particularly like an app called Perplexity which uses the open internet with the ChatGPT plugin but it's not trained on its own language model it's, it's using open data so it is a little bit more accurate I think it hallucinates marginally less but I find it super helpful and I never go to Google anymore sorry Sundar so it's um I'm just I'm really interested by the developments and I'm already shifting how I think it's going to impact work. Clearly, if you are in the content business, particularly at a kind of middle tier level, writing standard press releases, doing content input for a boring e-commerce website where you're, you know, importing what kind of pants they've got to sell, that's changing. It's changing super fast. 
you know, I used to be on the board of Marks and Spencer and I think about how their e-commerce teams, not now I'm sure, but used to be constructed and, you know, just thinking about the roles there, that I think is going to look very, very different very, very quickly. But I also think that we are all going to become more more productive, marginally more productive, because we can do more stuff, more informed, more quickly. And I think I've shifted even my position in the last few months about that, because I kind of thought, oh God, all these jobs are going to go now. I actually think, yes, some will, but they were going to anyway. And as always, it'll be a kind of, if you are a skilled and talented person, you will be exponentially more skilled and talented. If you're in that middle tier where it's unclear exactly what your skill and talent is, then I think it's going to be a lot tougher. If you're in a more rote job, but arguably it was ever thus, it doesn't make it easy on that. But you've just got to keep trying to upskill yourself. Totally agree. And also, you know, for people that were doing the sort of e-commerce, you know, SEO for pants, like how stimulating was was some of that work anyway? Oh no, of course, exactly right. No, exactly right. But then I think I have to be realistic about what work for somebody who has got you know different capacities and different ambitions and different skills and I believe everybody has skill but it's so it's not a kind of elitist thing but I also think some people just have different skills to other people and I think that is going to be a reorganization that's going to be complex I don't suddenly think there's going to be no work for people but I do think it's going to look pretty different. People will need to get better at briefing basically sort of training their AI almost like an intern. Yeah exactly the, the better you are at the prompt you know this crazy new job a prompt engineer but I do think there's something in that and I think as always it's just about being open-minded and continuing to learn I mean it just it's changing so quickly this stuff if you are shut off to it that's I think when you are in trouble. Totally I've got some friends in journalism who actually I don't know what their position is now but probably three or four months ago these pair of investigative journalists hadn't actually even opened or used ChatGPT. I was like but you would have thought that curiosity would have override any skepticism but um but I do like on that sort of briefing point, you can get better at being more specific about what you want. And actually there is a lot of value in that of like, rather than just saying, I want a social media post, you're like, okay, but what should it do? You know, what's the call to action? What are you actually trying to drive here? What would a really successful version of this look like? And actually sometimes we don't ask ourselves enough of those questions when we're, when we're just making things and putting them online. <laughs> do you have any other sort of thoughts on what people should be, from a career's point of view, maybe focusing on or skilling up in in particular, is it kind of, would, would you say generative AI is probably a big focus for that? You know, I think there's a real difference between a kind of medium term and a long term here, right? There's hundreds of things I think you can skill up on in the medium term and the long term. I go back to who the hell knows. You have to keep open-minded and keep flexible. But, you know, there are jobs across so many areas of technology that are rewarding and we need filling from cybersecurity to all of the new roles within the AI community to, you know, even just, you know, understanding some of the hardware challenges in data centers. You know, just every aspect of the chain still has um, unfilled jobs in it. So it's still a sector rich with opportunity, but it just might be that you're shifting a bit what that opportunity looks like in the medium term. I think that's going to be, again, that sort of the next generation are going to be have to be incredibly adaptable from the get-go absolutely and have just hundreds of more jobs in their lifetime you know thought I had a bunch of jobs but it's going to be as nothing compared to my kids I really do think that mm. but then you know the flip side of that is that there is a real world too and we have an extreme shortage of and this is this is a fact you know in this order um electricians dentists orthopedics doctors physiotherapists ophthalmologists dentists and vets so those jobs of course are going to be changed by technology over the next 10 years and 
some of them will shift quite dramatically but you know uh, the technology world is an aspect of our world and what we need as humans but it's only an aspect right it's a building block it's kind of it's hard even to distinguish it how it is melding into everything but there are still roles that we are going to need to be done it's going to be a long time i think till the robots take over and end with those jobs <laughs> i mean that's why i'm always polite to chat gpt is just in case they they do take over eventually <laughs> yes no i agree i always it makes me laugh that it, i even always type please in. and i will teach my kids to do the same <laughs> It's one of the things I don't like. I mean, yeah. I've never had an Alexa because I'm not shouting a woman's name without saying please or thank you. It just makes me absolutely furious. I know exactly what you mean. Why I, didn't they call it please? I mean, anyway, don't stop doing that. <laughs> um, yeah, feel completely the same. And um, yeah, I, I hate it when it's 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 often female names in some kind of subservient, weird yes, role. Yes, exactly. exactly. Do you have any other top tips to share when thinking about the sort of women of Web3 community who are, some of whom are already working in Web3, some of them are thinking about working in this stuff or more broadly in tech is anything that you would suggest either like reading frameworks to follow anything like that that you would point people towards i'm the worst person to ask because i like reading novels and poetry i don't like business books and i believe frameworks can often stifle not uh, encourage inspiration and creativity you know my own view and this is the questions that i ask myself to see whether these are things i want to do are you know when i look back in 10 years and be proud of what i'm doing am i making some small contribution to something that matters to me or to, you know, that I can put a, a value on, I'm not talking about financial value, I'm talking about you know, contributing to, to the UK, to the world in a small way. Secondly, are the right people in the room? You know, I'm bringing more people into the questions, the community, the work that I'm doing. More women, more people of colour, more people with disabilities, whatever it might be. Um, luckily, I fall into two of those categories, so that's kind of handy. And then finally, you know, am I using the tools of the modern age? Am I keeping relevant? Am I continuing to learn? And that's a huge part of it for me. I am not, as I say, a coder. I've never been able to do that, but I've always worked in technology. So if people take anything from me, it is that you really can build your own career in life and this stuff and it's difficult of course and I'm not underestimating still the misogyny the challenges the difficulty for for women and for other categories of people but at the same time there are more opportunities than ever there are more ways you can be an entrepreneur there are more opportunities to get involved to learn to grow and that is a phenomenally exciting moment to live in I love that um I think people will find that incredibly helpful actually uh, really inspiring okay if you don't mind me asking one more thing on the inspiration point I think people would find this exciting to know the answer is how did it feel to sell lastminute.com well I was so high on morphine at that point I really couldn't tell you I am it was 2005 and I was spending the second of two years in hospital after a car crash. And uh, I'm not trying to deflect the question, but without the sale of that company, I would definitely have not had the opportunities that I had to learn to walk again, to live the life I live now. So the sale is sobering for me because it enabled me to have proper sliding doors moments compared to most people who've suffered such a catastrophic car accident and I think about that all the time and I try in a small way to contribute to the community of people who are not so lucky in fact the reason I have to get off the call now is I've just become patron of a charity called one day one trauma that helps people who've suffered um horrific accidents so that's what I need to raise but um for me you know it wasn't just life-changing in a positive way that I could buy myself a nice house and all that kind of stuff it, it literally saved my life so I'm very grateful wow and uh, appropriate when we're recording at Thanksgiving it's been amazing to hear your story and I've really enjoyed this and I think people will find it incredibly valuable. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank 
Thanks for listening to the Women of Web3 podcast. I've been your host, Lauren Ingram. Please do give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps more women, more people find the show. Check out our website, womenofweb3.co, to come and join our talent collective and get your profile seen by potential Web3 employers, or you can choose to be anonymous if you prefer. If you're at a company that's looking to understand Web3 better, or you want to support women in this space, do get in touch with us on our website. And if you've got any questions, any comments, tweet us at womenofweb3co, or find us on LinkedIn, and we'll see you next Tuesday morning. Thank you.